Welcome to the Creative Industry Insight Podcast, a podcast that looks at various roles in the creative world. I'm your host, Bobby. Today's guest, Jennifer Starzik, who is a costume designer, joins us today to talk about her latest project, Bill and Ted Face the Music. Please be warned, there are heavy spoilers in this episode. So make yourself comfortable as we jump into the conversation with Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I was really happy that you were able to reach out after emailed your agent. I was just really, it was basically just, I don't know, I think it was just a more scary thing, emailing an agent rather someone directly. And the agent came through, so I must send them an email to thank them for passing it on and sorting me out. Yeah, here we are. That's great. And yeah, we're here today to talk about Bill and Ted Face the Music. I saw the film yesterday. It was good. It was really fun. It was it was such a palate cleanser to what I've been watching recently. And it was nice to be able to watch something that was less than 90 minutes. And it was just comedy and you could just sit back, relax and not worry about anything sort of thing. I feel like it's like perfect timing for that movie to come out. I mean, even when we were filming it last year, not knowing what was going to happen this year, you knew it was something special, but I feel like definitely it resonates at this moment in time. So, and I'm very proud because I think it's super sweet. And I just think that's a very rare, rare combination nowadays to be like silly and sweet and irreverent, but like very heartfelt. It's a very um, heartwarming film. And that's sort of, that's something that gets carried on in all three of the films and the way that, you know, Bill and Ted are both very, for lack of a better term, not the brightest crayons in the pack, but they're just so, you can't help but to fall in love with their characters and how they're portrayed and the way that they sort of, what they do is like for the better good and they want to do the best they can. And in a way, they, they're put into situations where they always put other people first. You know, it's shown in the first one where they want to sort of, succeed and have all these people from history uh, in the second one it's their girlfriends and the robots that come to kill them and now in the third one is the whole world <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I think people assume their characters are maybe like stoners or slackers and they definitely don't identify with that if you were to talk to you know Keanu and Alex it's they're just innocent and naive and very impulsive like you said and in the impulse the impulse that they have is to do something of like higher good. It's like, let's move forward for this and make it happen. So it's, you know, it's, uh, there are two very unique characters that I think, uh, I can't believe I've had this following for 30 years. And for me to work on like a cult film or iconic film, like was a dream come true. That leads me to my first question is when this project first came to you, was it a case of just being like seeing the title and accepting it straight away? Were you somewhat apprehensive to take the project because it's a sequel for film 20 years on? Yeah, 30 years, actually. Is it 30? Oh, oh 30 wow, my, my maths yeah. is awful. Isn't Sorry that, about that. No, no, it's fine. No, I mean, t- truthfully, I approach any script that comes to me the same exact way. Um, even if I kind of, I didn't have to Google it with Bill and Ted, but even if I quickly Google any press that's related to it, I sit down and I just read the script. 
I don't even, even if I'm like falling in love with it and can picture the characters, I don't even get involved in that. I just let the scripts take me on the journey. And by the time I finished that script, not only did I have like the biggest smile on my face, I had completely envisioned the whole film in my mind and could not wait to set up a meeting to move forward on it. But also for me, I was a fan. I wasn't like a fanatic, but I was a fan. I watched those films in the theaters when they came out. And like two very random fun facts, like I had found during like the really hardcore quarantine, I was down at my, I was visiting my family an old poster from like a, you know, teenage girls magazine, like Sassy or whatever, Jane, of Keanu and Alex. And this was after the fact that we you know we're already filmed, I'm waiting for the film to come out. And I was still pinned inside, like behind my, what was my old bedroom at my family's. And when I was in high school, I ditched a day of school and drove up because they had a casting call, an open casting call for background to be in the concert scene of Bogus Journey. And like, two girlfriends and myself have driv like drove up to LA to be in that scene. So like it was, it wasn't a full circle thing, but like as things started to continue momentum, I was like, oh yeah, I did that. Like, oh yeah, I, I was like a total fan of that film. Like it was just things that had come back into full circle. Did you mention this to anybody on set or did you keep it as a secret just in case you might've come off as like, not in a, an imposter stalker, but just yeah. like a super no. fan? <laughs> No, I mean, I, I wouldn't have like come out of the gate with it, but the the head producer, Scott Krupp, who had reached out to me to see if I was interested in the movie, he had produced the other two. So this was like his baby, like these are his projects. He's completely, he's first of all, a fabulous producer, but like this is definitely his movie with the original writers. So you were like in a warm comfort zone. And then when I had met with the director first, I don't think I mentioned it then, but I definitely mentioned it along the process because it became a very close family. Everybody sort of had the same vibe. So it was very easy just to be yourself. And it wasn't freaky at all. Like, and I think someone had given me a gift. My supervisor actually had found on eBay original dolls from Excellent Adventure of you know, Bill and Ted, and I had brought it into the fitting, and I was like, look, guys, and they were like, yeah, we've seen millions of them. Like, they were, like, so over it, and I was like, well, you'll be signing this one for me now. Like, so, yeah, <laughs> it was good, yeah. Cool, that's that's really nice to hear, though, as well, when you are a fan of something. Uh, I know it's not 100% full circle, but it is that sort of moment where, imagine if you had that telephone box, and you can go back to meet your, meet your younger self and be like, hey, this is what's going to happen in 30 odd years where you'll, you know, it'll be people watching your costumes on the screen and uh, oh. your ideas. Yeah, and the like, absolutely pure excitement. And I have very vivid memories of actually watching the first film. Like I remember which movie theater I was at, you know, in which mall. And I remember that concert scene like very well and like moments of it. Cause of course I've never done anything like that before. You were like, what, what the heck am I doing here? You know? So yeah, it was quite incredible. So. But this must've been uh, quite the dream job for costume designer. Just because how much the film bounces from different time periods and like you got the past, you got the present, you got the future. So you basically like you just have a massive canvas. Like what was the probably what time period was probably the hardest to design? Well, I also want to mention when I had received the script to meet for it, I was doing reshoots of Mindhunter. So you couldn't have received the 
like polar opposite of a script to read. So, and I'd already been in Mindhunter now that was like going well over a year of, of working on that. So you were in this like very serious, reverent content. So to read that script and like be like, like I can like breathe and like see the light. It was very exciting for me because I knew I could be very, I, for a costume designer, you could move on to the complete opposite of what you've been doing and living and breathing. So, and then to have all those time periods, those were actually a little daunting because as usual, there's always, you know, everyone always complains that there's no money, but it was a very small budget film for what you would think a Bill and Ted film would be for. So, and the audience's eyes now are so trained to see these like picture perfect period pieces, you know, with like the most insane detail and they, they're so ready to tell you what isn't right. And, you know, if you were going to build something in the future, they're used to seeing all these huge DC Marvel films. So it was how can I uh, uh, attain all of these different elements and not have it look hokey, or if I'm gonna lean into something silly, I hope it, it clearly says that, like I'm having fun, I'm doing a little you know, tongue in cheek with this. So for me, it was, it was excellent. I enjoyed it, not, there was nothing that I could pinpoint saying it was difficult. It was just definitely balancing yourself to make sure everything worked on an even, even level. Yeah, because I can imagine it's going from Mindhunter, which if anybody's <laughs> listening that doesn't know, is basically a show about serial killers and people interviewing serial killers. And then going from that way, it's quite maybe, let's say, bleak. I think bleak is probably the right word to use, to then going to something so lighthearted. It must be a complete palate cleanser. But then also with Mindhunter being set in... I'd say the seven is it the seventies, sixties, seventies, yeah, seventies. Yeah. I guess you could be slightly constrained to how people would look because it's very people are based in an office, so they're quite they'll be neat, tidy, and then very based in the FBI. I guess in air quotes, uptight sort of looking and feeling of what they're wearing. To then go to Bill and Ted, where there's literally just so much to choose from and yeah. and especially with the it's this has just come to my mind now thinking about this different time periods that they travel to is that the clothing they choose is actually quite bright and vibrant so i guess you the first one is Jimi hendrix where it's the 60, 60s is he some 60s uh-huh. yeah yeah Oh, I'm, I'm absolutely awful at history. So that'll be very vibrant, hippie-esque. And then you've got a trumpet player. Louis uh, Armstrong. Louis Armstrong, thank you. Going yeah. in, the, in the 20s. Yeah. But then I'm, I'm going to safe to assume that it's like the roaring 20s sort of style. So then that's, again, that's very nice, vibrant. And he also looks very elegant and smart. And then you've got Mozart. Again because it's even further back yeah, and that sort of upper class lifestyle, I guess, aristocrat, you can play with that to make it look beautiful. And then you go even further back to China where you can just show off this sort of elegant traditional look. And I think probably, I guess in air quotes, the most probably blandest costume is the cave woman costume. Which was, she was uh, Paleolithic. And there was things that sort of evolved maybe after it was sort of designed, like, like there probably wasn't yurts then. And then they, then they settled it in Siberia. So there was 
elements that were to that that kind of came out afterwards, which I think is just adds to the fun of the movie. So maybe it wasn't, you know, maybe her furs would have been a different color, but it, de it definitely worked out. And Patty Ann Miller, who plays her, is actually a, an extremely talented drummer. Like they went for, they found an actress who also plays the drums. And you don't really see her enough, I feel like, in it. And, um, but her costume is extremely complex actually, and I had used all real materials materials on her, and then kind of did some fun tweaks, like I had like a, like a old, you know, jute fishing net and all sorts of stuff to make it little punk tweaks and gave her like a fingerless glove and things like that, and um, we had a lot of fun with that, so. But along the way there, yeah, you had so many different time periods and you'd visit them, and of course they would have their own sets of background, and that was, to me, totally the fun of it, for sure. I enjoyed like all of those qualities. The main five were based on research, except for Ling Lun. Ling Lun is coined for like discovering music in China, but there's no, there's just like a few random maybe paintings. So, and very obscure. You don't know if it's a man or a woman. So they decided to have Ling Lun be a woman and, and just make sure I had a very beautiful hand embroidered costume, like something that would be of the time to, to signify that. Was historical accuracy important whilst designing or was it more just giving the audience a visual aid of the sort of rough the time period is from? I guess it does help that these, the musicians and the art appear that, you know, you know what sort of time period that you're going to be based in. Yes, we definitely wanted to be as historical accurate as possible and within reason of what we could, you know, do for hair, makeup, wardrobe, and the budget we had, and how many clothes we could actually build versus rental. So it was it was a combination of both. But definitely we wanted to have a very, you know, in the end, a very elevated costumes. You want your costumes to service the film. So I feel like it, it did its purpose in that way. I, I don't think you're taken out of it, and there's some enjoyment in there, and maybe I used... Like when we were at Mozart, I was like, everyone's going to be like frothy, like macaroons. Like I used this whole color palette there for that. Like, you know, you just sort of leaned into it in your own way. You, you mentioning about the use of like a color palette and everything. Whilst reading the script, do you already have those sort of colors in mind? Or is it something that you and the director sort of decide beforehand that you, when you, before you start creating? For this particular film, it was it wasn't so channeled in like something. I know we're not discussing minor, but something like minor, you definitely had a color palette that was discussed prior. But for this, I had you know read the script, made my notes, put put my boards together, met with Dean Pariso, just an incredible director, and we were just you know pretty much on the same page. And then then the next set of our process, because it's Bill and Ted, and because it's the third installment, and because it's Keanu and Alex, it was like, first, we're going to defer to them. No one's going to know Bill and Ted more than Keanu and Alex. And they had a lot of input. I mean, it's, it's normal to have a collaboration anyhow across the board with director and cast and everybody else. But definitely, they we deferred to them what they were comfortable wearing for their main costume. And once that was settled, then I started doing my other fittings. And once we realized maybe Keanu and Alex, maybe Bill and Ted weren't gonna be some way over the top version of themselves, like still stuck in Arrested Development, I had all of that leeway to channel that into the daughters. So it was like, okay, we have all of this still left in the air. People are gonna still wanna see something bright and fun and patterns and colorful and effervescent basically. And I was able to like put that all into the daughter's characters. And then the best part about it was all of our fittings were together. Like I fit 
I never fit Bill and Ted alone. It was like Keanu and Alex showed up at the same time. We did all of their fittings together and the same with their daughters, although they have less changes, but I did the same thing with the daughters. So, and that worked out perfectly because you knew no one had to fight over a color. They, they, were, they were in the room, we were doing it together. You know what color they're picking. We, like, like we need to balance it out. So it ended up being, um, it ended up just settling naturally. Uh, it's quite uh, cool that they did their fittings together because traditionally it's just, oh, one person at a time, they come in, yada, yada, yada. But then to have them come in as a pair as well, I guess it shows a sort of testament of how much that, that character means to them. That it's not just, oh, we're coming here because we're, you know, it's another Bill and Ted film. It's like, no, we want this to be as good as possible and we want it to, that sort of like friendship that's... Oh on screen and off screen to sort of collide? Oh, they're, they're extremely close. I mean, they would meet and the fitting might be a delayed start because they would both arrive at the same time and meet out front of the costume house and then go sit under the tree and talk for like a half hour to catch up on their lives. And people would be freaking out. They'd be like, Keanu's under the tree. Like, you know, they'd just be so excited about the whole thing. And then they would come in and they would do their thing. And they, but they both have their own process. They're, you know, they're, different people but they're they're close friends from working together all these years and they do stay in touch and and you know for all I know hang out a lot as much as they can and you know like they would leave a fitting and be like love you dude love you like you know it was just like it was very very sweet and at my first very first fitting I had only a week to grab Keanu more so because he just finished John Wick and he was going on a huge John Wick press tour so I had to like kind of cover everything in the very first fitting because I knew I had a big chunk of time that I wouldn't see him. So I could move forward on a lot of the other ideas. And so that was, I, I mean, I had an arsenal of clothes and ideas and like tailors and you know, fabrics. It was just like everything was like in that room. So not only was it Keanu and Alex, myself, tailors, all this clothing, but Dean, the director was there, which I absolutely love. I love when a director can be in the fitting in the room at the same time and Scott, the producer. And at like one point the like makeup person popped in. It was like so many people in that room. Um, so it was like, let's just get to it. So it was kind of amazing. Uh, that's quite unusual as well to have so many people turn up because it's usually if they do a makeup test it'll be makeup test first then costume fitting but then have it all sort of wrapped into one kind of shows the testament and what people wanted to create absolutely and they were all very comfortable i mean maybe a director wouldn't be comfortable with so many people in the room but they were you know it's scott's baby and dean and scott been now working together for years to make this movie happen so they were comfortable being together bill corso who was the makeup artist had worked with alex for a lot of years um and you know I might be wrong and Canada too. And so they were comfortable with him stopping by because he wanted to see how the process was going. So it was just sort of like, can I come? And I was, wasn't going to say no. I was like, sure, everybody should come. Let's go, you know? So for a costume designer to have the director in the room, I think it's very, very beneficial because there's so much that happens in that room that you can't translate into just a photograph that you share afterwards because there's so much process going on in that realm. Like people have to, they have to get naked and then completely start over again and then feel like like there's a clicking moment and then like, let's go from here. Like, this is what I like, can you find that? And if someone's not in the room to hear all that going on, they might not understand why Ted's in a suit. You know what I mean? Like, it could be like, how did this happen? You know, so it's like for everybody to be there at the same time is fabulous. I guess it's the opposite to the phrasing, picture paints a thousand words. It's more like, yeah. It's like uh, the picture misses a thousand words because of what's being said and decided. And 
it's weird because I spoke to another costume designer about this, but the how you're involved in your part of that clay for the actor to get into the character and bring everything to life, especially with, I guess, with this sort of film, because it's a comedy, it's quite bright. When did you decide not to make it too visual so that it's kind of toes the line between silly and serious? For the main two? I guess for everybody, because I guess sometimes uh, with comedy, you can associate costumes that would be like, oh yeah, this guy's the funny guy, this guy is this. But I guess it's also, you don't want their costume, you know, the funniness of their costume to sort of overshadow the performance and their performance get ignored. I'm going to take that as a compliment, actually. Yeah, that it just sort of served its purpose. The costumes really worked well with the script, so you weren't detracted from, distracted from them. That's uh, a more articulate way of uh, saying what I just said. So uh, let's go with that question. (laughs) That just came naturally. So it was not, it was not something that was premeditated and discussed. It was, I think that was more when I had met with Dean and we saw that we were on the same page and where we wanted to go. So it just, it just worked itself out naturally, very organically for sure. I just want to go to a point that you mentioned earlier in regards to the daughters. So was the whole fittings for Alex and Keanu, their costume was all done and decided and then you moved on to the daughters or was it ever sort of back and forth between the parents and daughters on how they're going to look? No, the definitely, definitely we needed to settle on Bill and Ted first and that came together in its own timing. And actually at that time, the daughters weren't cast, so they were still being cast. So it was settled, their main look. That's the only one that really was what you had to worry about with the daughters sharing screen time. So by the time I fit the daughters, it was all set. So it worked out. It just worked out naturally with timing. Okay, I thought it was going to be another. We had a really nice group moment of this at the other. But it just seems like it's come down to timing. I guess there's one costume that I do want to talk about, and that's Death's. I guess to the average person, it just looks like somebody's put black cloth or blanket over someone and be like, bosh, done, you can go on to set. But when I was actually watching it and looking at it, there's more to it. And it looks like it was not just cloth, it was numerous fabrics used. What was the, the design process in creating Death's look? And how important was it for it to pop off the screen because as well black clothing is very hard to see on screen that's exactly right black will just sort of blend into nothing however william so william sadler is just people he's a beloved character death is like a beloved character to the fans and william sadler is very proud to play that character so we had our own discussion and you know there was kind of certain variables like in the very beginning i was like i'm gonna make this amazing like grim reaper but then it was like so here's your budget so you know we had to go back into that so it was like how can i and then watching bogus journey i do feel like yeah especially since that so many years ago it does look like maybe it's just something very simple and i wanted to make sure i hope i gave it more depth and texture than that so then i just started sourcing really cool black fabric. So I wanted to get something that was more like cobwebby or something that has texture in it that 
looked as though it was scarred. So I had this like burlap and then it was sort of slightly scorched and it was like over dyed a bunch of times. And it was really hard to draw some of the color out of it to make it look like so I had different layers of black. And the same thing with the, um, he had three elements on. So he had like a tunic and a cape and and something for his underlayers because to hide some of the body makeup and the cape i loved absolutely and that had like three different kinds of fabrics in it and again that was like scorched leather and you know perforated leather that we like kind of tore into and then his own his own requests that he also wore in bogus journey that we carried through were these six inch like monster platform boots so that he could like stand up a certain way and be as tall as possible because he is sort of a Grim Reaper type character. And so that incorporated into the costume. And as soon as he, I mean, for me, it was very, it was like one of those just very happy, sweet moments. Cause in our fitting, when he finally flew into for his first fitting and he put everything on and he was like, and he did his death and he was like, I'm in character. And so to me, that was like, okay, we're, we can move forward. Like, that's a really great moment for costume designers when they, like, they know, like, he started speaking like his character, basically, in the fitting. So I'm like, okay, we're in the right ballpark then. So it was, yeah, for just black, there's definitely, definitely a lot of textures and layers in there. Yeah, I was curious to know how they made Death look so tall. Now you mentioned the big platform shoes. It just all makes sense now. It all makes sense of how that looks. But it's, it's great as well to hear that such a simple, I guess on screen is a, in air quotes, a simple costume, but how much goes into it to make sure that it's right. And how much sort of, you were explaining as well that there's three different materials and that you use the three different materials and how it's important that they stand out. And especially in his scenes when you're based in hell, it's quite yeah. uh, dark and everything. I think if it's done incorrectly, then you just see a floating head that he disappears. But as well, the film jumps to the future and there's, there's various times where you, well, there's different points in the future. So you obviously have a couple of years from the present day and then it jumps many years. Uh, what's the sort of inspiration for the future, futuristic wardrobe? So the future, uh, that was also another happy coincidence because when I had, you know, presented my ideas to Dean, he was like, that's the kind of future I'm talking about too. But for, for me, then I had to go meet, as you do with, when you're collaborating, like, let's talk about, I had to go meet with the production designer, Melanie Jones, and I was like, let's, you know, what, where are we going with this? Because I want to make sure those costumes fit into that you're talking like 700 years into the future. And again, you're talking about a lot of audience nowadays who has see the future all the time and what does that mean to them so they have a certain look to it so what are we going to do and how are we going to achieve it with our time and money and we were inspired by Calatrava who's a Spanish architect who is I mean mind-blowing if you don't know who I'm talking about go ahead and just look it up right now and very organic shapes repetition white with very cool tones and that was the the start of that was like the basis for everything afterwards. So with that in mind, of course, so as we were filming, Westworld came out and they they actually went to Spain and filmed at Calatrava. <laughs> so we were like, oh, are we gonna continue to do that? But we're like, I, they ended up doing it. I didn't know when we wrapped what they were going to do because at that point a lot of that was green screen. But what I had learned in the process is my original ideas weren't going to translate because of the green screen. I had very like amoeba like floaty iridescent 
shapes, but because of the green screen, I needed something more structural. So I, I kind of leaned into more of the architectural element of Calatrava and just making very like strong structural shapes. And that sort of evolved into its own thing. So when I did Holland Taylor's as the great leader, it was like, okay, I wanted this like cape-like thing. And then that turned into, you know, let's have the gloves and let's have the Whipple and let's have all of this kind of stuff that kind of just blends into itself. And for Kristen Shaw's character, Kelly, it was just like, how can we kind of make her, because she's sassy and she's, you know, very like, you know, whip smart to her, to her mother and just sort of kind of playing into a more of a, not cutesy, but definitely just making those architectural shapes more youthful. And, you know, I wanted this, I had this vision of like this very big structural bell skirt and a weird cape and just how could that work together? So that was the future for us. I guess with the future, you can, there's so many endless possibilities because no one knows what's going to be the cool thing at the time. But I guess you have so much more creative freedom in how to make things look. And I just like the sort of, I think I read somewhere originally where you first meet the elders that they're sort of floating up and originally you wanted to have, it's not a cape, but sort of more, more material sort of floating out from the arms and sort of waist area, but it didn't work out on screen, if that's correct. Yes. Yeah. I just touched on that. It was the, the kind of fabric, what we had to use because of the green screen, I needed to make sure there was no transparency. I had wanted to have very like floating amoeba like shapes and because of the green screen, I needed something more structural because of the way they have to, for lack of better words, kind of cut around it. Right. And then put the background in, but I loved, uh, we had this amazing, like they had their own version of the future elder tribe and they were all you know custom made and very amazing costumes and they kind of you know as soon as you know when you see everything added together you don't every, not everything really has screen time but i definitely enjoyed that scene and all the characters that they brought into it to play those so it was it was super fun for design for sure and i think originally dean was thinking maybe based on excellent journey that they'd all be wearing the same costumes because when they go to the future an excellent journey everybody's sort of like in the same robe and like these glasses and i was like no let's let's play with it let's make sure everybody has their own vibe and maybe they come from different cities of the future or something <laughs> yeah so yes i guess you change it up a little bit because it's like but like the next generation have moved on from Bill and Ted so then it'll be how is this sort of society developed and if they've saved the world then what's the sort of music or influences that it's created in it. I do want to touch on as well onto Dennis, the robots. Were you involved in his overall design and how he looked? I was not. So they had, you know, Bill and Ted had kind of been in the works loosely for years, but not greenlit. So they had, there was a small group of core people that maybe had worked on the other bogus journey or maybe even bogus and excellent and they had kind of already been bantering around ideas and so they'd already kind of started on the robot one reason mainly because those kind of builds take an extremely long amount of time and we did not we had a very short prep time so they definitely had to get that underway and get that going in order to have it ready for camera for filming so they had already reached out to i think when i first started they were just they were shopping it around, but they knew they had to make a decision really quick. And they ended up with somebody that the producer had worked with before many years ago. And his name is Steve Wang, I believe. Steve Wang designed it. And Onyx might be his, his company. 
and they and he, they basically made it as soon as as soon as he designed it and he needed to design something that probably he knew he could execute in that amount of time so and it was very complex i mean it's not like that was a very easy build that they ended up making in that short amount of time they were still putting it together for that very first time it filmed like they were like like he had his team there, they were stitching, gluing, they were making it work for on camera, definitely when it finally arrived. And then Anthony Kerrigan is the robot. And it's just, I mean, you know, at first he was like, what did I sign on for? I'm like in this like, costume. I'm like in the, he had to go into the works for like hours. And then we filmed in New Orleans in the heat. Like people didn't film, they don't normally film in the late summer there because it's hurricane season. <laughs> And we're there filming away in the heat and he's got all this stuff on and, but I can't think of anyone, but I mean, just, he's one of those people where you just look at and you start laughing. Like he just has that, like he's, he's a big actor. Yeah. Yeah. He's so uh, expressive in his facial expressions absolutely. and absolutely love him in Barry as Noho Hank. Just oh. the things that he does just, it's yeah, just so funny. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, there's little bits where he's just like. Yeah, it's so good. He's so <laughs> just like, oh. Yeah, just like it, just everything he, that he does so well in that, and he's just like, yeah, just, it, he's just so good, and I just want to see him in more things. And it was just like a really nice surprise as well, seeing him in Bill and Ted. And he took very simple lines, and and you know, he he definitely gave it his own vibe. I mean, they like really created those. He created that character very well, so and brought it to life. It's like he, he's a robot, but then it's one of those sort of moments where a robot kind of gets a soul. And yeah. the way that he sort of like portrays it. He has some empathy and he's, he's, um, yeah, uh, he has no confidence. He's a robot with no confidence. It's like, it's so silly. Yeah. <laughs> There's also another scene that I would like to talk about. And that's when they're in the house. It's quite ridiculous how they're basically made to look like very eighties glam rock band, very uh, Motley Crue-esque. Oh, uh, yes. House. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that was probably my favorite costume of all of them, just because one, they looked ridiculous, but two, it just worked in the scene so well that these guys are kind of hit rock bottom and the juxtaposition, sorry, of their mood and the color presented. Was that always an original idea to have them in the Motley Crue-esque outfits or is that something that was developed over time? It was twofold because first we were going to base what they're wearing because essentially they break into this rock star's house and they're supposed to kind of be like stealing their wardrobe. So, but we, they, you know, the producers and the casting had not landed on which rock star would be available and, you know, et cetera. And of course they're, you know, we filmed in New Orleans, so it was, you know, what kind of house are we going to find and what's that going to represent? So we went twofold. I mean, you knew from Excellent Adventure they were Van Halen fans, and then you knew from Bogus Journey they were kind of like rock and, you know, rock and roll. So I did a lot of ideas based on late 80s and early 90s bands. But at that point, like, we were throwing out anything. I was like, are they going to Lenny Kravitz's house? Because that's going to have them dressed a certain way. So it was very up in the air. And then we finally realized we just need to settle on Rockstar. And what does Rockstar mean? And what does Rockstar mean to them is basically what they thought they would have achieved in the late 80s if they had made it. Like, this is how we'll look. So we went for that. And I had a bunch of different ideas. And then when Alex had come into the room, he was like, I'm putting on everything animal print. And so he like went through and did that. And then we kind of, you know, 
based his costume off of that and made something from that. And then and Keanu was like, I have to wear leggings. So, you know, it started with like Saul leggings to like just crazy stripes and like basing off of that. And, and then it was a lot of like, and I think I need the top hat because that will be slash. Like everything is very, was very organic, but worked itself out. So yeah. And definitely, definitely just ridiculous. And it should be so. And I love that they like adopted a British accent because they were like, we've been summering there. Like it was just like, it was just like ridiculous. So yeah. I think that was probably potentially the most, my favorite scene as well. Just everything about it. And I, I just love that they dressed up like the, the, the Motley Crue sort of look. And it's weird that they just pulled it off as well. They looked really good in that, in those outfits. Absolutely. They, they're, you know, they're amazing. They're incredible. So both of them. And I'll always be my maybe had just come out also at the same time that Keanu was in. And you kind of, I don't know if you've watched that. He does this whole silly bit on himself with that. So you knew he, I didn't know he would go there because obviously John Wick is his big, huge character. Now that's like such a part of his, you know, his acting career. But so, but like, so as soon as he was like leggings, like, and he just like, you were like, this is great. We're gonna, we're going to open up a whole another world of possibilities there. So. I guess as well, when you have a uh, actor who's willing to sort of put themselves out there in something really ridiculous, I guess as a designer, you, the possibilities are endless of like, okay, so you're willing to do this. Let's, let's, ra- let's ramp up to the next level and make it even yeah. more ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. So it was fun. One of the final questions I do have is, what was your favorite costume to design? Oh, I don't have one. I really, I don't have one. I really enjoy, like, I really enjoyed, obviously, how the daughters came out. So, because that, I think, channels a lot of maybe my own personal (laughs) things that I like. And I think that I like, they look very instinctual. Like, they would just dress in whatever the heck they want to dress in. And it's very, like, genderless and just kind of cool. But in the end, I absolutely adore... I just was so happy to be a part of that project and to have so many opportunities in that project and everything was very different. And I think it, for me, you know, at the, after, after seeing it all come together and watching the final project, I was like, Oh, this is amazing. I mean, I, like I said, in the start, I just to be a part of a film that's so sweet and still silly. And, you know, I had watched it, I kind of went to like a, they had a very loose, cast and crew screening they couldn't really have one obviously with the state of the world right now um so but to watch it first at a drive-in there and then the next night I went and watched it at a drive-in again with my friends and then I watched it at home where you could actually see the details I would I saw things that you and this always happens when you watch your work that you didn't even realize were happening or that the the words weren't really coming together like that that Ed and Chris wrote like I like there's so many funny parts I realized after the fact so I just am very happy of the whole film. I'm happy that the whole film means so much. And it's just a sweet film. I think it's always a daunting thing to sort of revisit characters and put a film out for after so long. But I think after the sort of first scene, you get taken straight into it and you know what to expect. It's not, they're not trying to fix something that's broken. They're, they're taking these characters and sort of stringing them along to their next, I guess, destination as people. You know, you see them as those sort of teenagers trying to make their way through school. And then you've got them trying to make it as musicians. And then now it's like, oh, no, we're trying to make it like adults. And I guess like it's also reflected in the design of how 
things have moved forward with them and expressed in their sort of like um, a midlife crisis sort of thing and trying to find yeah. what you're doing. Absolutely. It's the, the film definitely stands alone. Like you could pick it up and maybe this whole new generation of people that maybe weren't familiar with the first two films, you could sort of pick it up and maybe then go backwards. It didn't, you didn't need to have the whole story for it. And yeah, it was very important both to Keanu and Alex that they were not stuck in time. I mean, one, it is 30 years later. 30 years later for them personally, 30 years later for them and for their character. And it would be silly to pick up right where you left off because it really wouldn't, it wouldn't um, add much. And that's a testament to Chris and Ed who wrote the script because they definitely, you know, it would, without that original thought, it would have kind of, I think, it would not have been in the film it is, so. Yeah, no, it was very enjoyable in such a palette cleanser as well at this moment in time. I just want to finally wrap it up with one final question and just want to ask what's next for you that's a very good question i went on immediately to do another film which was absolutely amazing another polar opposite of mindhunter and bill and ted and it's called reminiscence it's coming it's slated to come out spring of next year so i can't divulge a lot of information on it but it's an it's completely original it's like a, it's sci-fi thriller i like to call it more of a neo-noir Lisa Joy directed it, wrote it, and directed it, and she's known for Westworld with her husband Jonah, and it's it's such an incredible force of a person. And it stars oh, just some you know Hugh Jackman, Rebecca Ferguson, <laughs> Tammy Newman, like has the best cast. So uh, I've never heard of these uh, unknown people. Maybe they might not, become big. Or me, right? So. Um, <laughs> So that comes out in spring and I can't wait to see how that comes together. Cause that was an amazing, uh, that was another script that I read it and I was like, wow. I mean, it's just going to be super cool. And then currently that finished right basically when the initial, the actual shutdown kind of happened in our world. And I don't have anything lined up at the moment. I'm waiting for the right project at the right time. And I believe it will come. I've had some inquiries, but they did not seem to be, they didn't seem to be the right fit. Yeah, you know, there's so many other concerns you have to think about right now. So it's not just one, I want to take something I actually would like to take, which is great. That has nothing to do with it. But you have to be concerned about everything else in the world right now. So <laughs> it all has to come together. So a lot of things are filming internationally. So, but it's also busy internationally. So if I was going to take a film in another country, is there even crew available? So I'm open. So we'll see what happens. And, um, yeah, I'm excited. So I'm sure something right will come along. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sure it will. And I just want to say thank you for joining me today and sitting down and talking with me. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Look forward to hearing it. No, great. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll send you a link of everything and go from there. Well, I like to keep in touch and see what all my guests have been up to and everything. Oh, absolutely. Um, no, thank you again. Thank you very much. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Take care. Take Bye -bye. care. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast.